Brian De Palma's 1981 film Blowout, the main character is a sound effects specialist who accidentally records a murder while collecting night sound effects for his library. The inspiration for this character was Dan Sable, a New York-based sound editor and collaborator on nine of De Palma's films, including Carrie, Dressed to Kill, and Blowout. Dan Sable built a career as a sound editor, working on such iconic films as Annie Hall and Manhattan, among many films with Woody Allen. Other directors with whom he collaborated include Bob Fosse, Volker Schlorendorf, Ron Howard, and Jonathan Demme. I couldn't work fast enough on a movie audit. You take a roll of sound film and you throw it out on the floor and you just pull something from here and pull something from there and splice it together and make it work and it was a lot of fun. I'm your host, Isabel Saderni, and this is Frame by Frame, introducing you to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution of the global film community. Frame by Frame is co-presented by the Post-New York Alliance and Motion Picture Editors Guild because it's how you finish that counts. You can find us online at http colon backslash backslash bit dot do slash frame by frame or on Twitter at, at @postny. This interview was recorded in Dan Sable's home by Iris Spiegel and Sherry Johansson for Frame by Frame. Dan started by discussing the difference between a sound editor versus a sound supervisor. See, the thing about a sound supervisor is, who am I supervising? Am I supervising people who are working on the film with me, or am I supervising the overall sound of the film itself. And it was never clear to me what that actually meant. So in a lot of films, I was the only sound editor working. I do the dialogue first, and then I take notes to see what's missing, and then I do the effects. But I had to do it because that's the way it was done. So I didn't take supervising sound editor because I wondered, who am I supervising? But then again, Maybe I'm supervising the sound, but the director doesn't know that, and the producer doesn't know that. Like, they never mention the fact that I'm supervising the sound. So, I was a sound editor. My whole training has been in music. I'm a trombone player. I have a master's degree in music theory and composition. I studied composition at Tanglewood, I was there for a summer in 1955. So when I came to New York, I got a job at ASCAP identifying music. Listen to a tape recorder and sit there and identify music being played on shows. And it was pretty easy because I knew all these tunes. I knew, I knew the standards. I knew all that music. But then rock and roll came in. About the time I was working there, it was about 1955, 56. And when rock and roll came in, I went out. After getting a master's degree, I went back to school to a place called RCA Institutes at that time. And I learned electronics. And I got a job as a radio station engineer up in Mount Kisco. I left the radio station after about six months to go on a film. And, and uh, the very first sound job I did, a commercial. Dick Voracek was the mixer on that. So I started out my very first job with Dick Voracek, the, the king. 
And here's a man who was totally in charge, totally. And he sent you into the back room to make changes every 10 feet. I had to do it a lot. I was constantly going in the back room, you know, and making changes. And, and it's funny because Dick Voracek uh, started this thing where if you took some room tone and if you started to cut it together, you'd hear a bump, a bump, a bump each time. And, and he worked out the business of forward and reverse and forward and reverse. So you got a piece of room tone and it's this long, and then you take that same piece of room tone and re-record it in reverse. So if the room tone was rising and you cut it into the piece that you had in reverse, it would join up with something at exactly the same level, and then it would go down again. So we, so we did that on mag, and that carried over into digital. You know, I'd, I'd find a piece of room tone, which was a part of the dialogue track. If I had to fill a, a section, you, the best way to do it was to take a piece of room tone from exactly that scene and as close to that piece of dialogue as possible. And that, that's what everybody did. When I started, the mixes would start at zero, zero, the start mark, and go straight through to the end of the reel without stopping. There was no rock and roll when I started. And what you would do is, if you'd get a couple of takes that you'd like, or you'd cut those together in the final mix. The thing is, we were mixing the quarter inch, 14K sink, for a child sink. And so every time that there was a splice, you can see that, that green eye that told you you were in sync drop out. It'd go over the splice, it'd go boom like that, and so you'd lose a little bit of sync each time. Then after a while, through the years, we had, it wasn't rock and roll, it was pickup recording. In other words, you could go through a reel and insert a new sound into it and then go from there up to the end. Then, later on, you could go forward and reverse, you know, and pick up. But that didn't, that didn't happen until the, uh, the mid-60s, I would say. I think that the mixers were always in charge and respected the most. None quite as much as Dick Voracek. There were other people who were so talented that they deserved a lot, you know, of respect. I'm thinking of Skip Leafsey and Lee, of course. Lee Dichter is, is, I admire a great deal. I think that a mixer can bring a whole new feeling to the, you know, to your tracks. You shouldn't, I, I mean, I mean there, are, there are certain things that you have to have, there are certain sounds that, that, that have to be heard in a certain way. But for the general overall feeling of the film, I, 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 I leave that up to the mixer. As far as the sound editors go, I had a great mentor. His name was Frank Lewin, and he worked at Film Sounds with me, and he was a composer and he actually taught me everything about editing. It's just, it was just wonderful. I just admire that guy so much. And he wrote all of the music for, for some series of work, like NYPD and The Defenders and The Nurses.
he wanted to make sure that the sound effects in the background were working with his music. And that was important. And even to the point where I had to give him car horns in certain keys. He taught me how to edit dialogue, a way which is not done these days. But the way we did it was instead of splitting tracks all the time, you carry a sound, like a background sound, on one track up to a hard sound on the same track. So the hard sound would take away any sort of difference in the track. And you'd end up with a single track that worked, that worked fine. You couldn't do that nowadays. Boy, you gotta, you gotta split everything off. Dan was one who was able to successfully transition from working in analog to the digital era. While I was working on the movieola, on films, there was something always in the back of my mind that said, there's going to be a better way of doing this. I know it. Someday, I'm not going to have to go and pull out a quarter-inch tape and take it to a recorder and audition it for sound effects and then transfer it on a 35 mag and then roll it up and give it back to myself and then put it on the movieola. But having said that, it was a lot of fun. I couldn't work fast enough on a movieola. You take a roll of sound film and you throw it out and it, 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 it would unspool on the floor. You'd have everything laying around on the floor, not hanging in bins. And you'd just pull something from here and pull something from there and splice it together and make it work. And it was a lot of fun. But then I knew something was going to happen that allowed you to audition your sound, grab it, and edit it without leaving your chair. And that's what happened in the digital revolution. And it lived up to all my expectations. I loved doing it that way too. And when I look back on the movieola and the synchronizer and all that, I just look upon it as being a wonderful era. It's more complicated now, I, I think. And there's less people involved doing the same amount of work. For instance, if you worked on the movieola, you usually had an assistant with you. Every editor had an assistant. Now there's one assistant for all the editors. So that changed. As a digital uh, sound work came in, it meant that you could do more in less time. And that had a big effect on the budget of the film too. Because then you would budget your film so that, you know, on one year, it would take six weeks to do the job. And then a few years later, you could do the whole thing in four weeks. And they expected you to do that. I started doing that in 1985 with a kind you know, of a rudimentary sound editing system. It, it was DOS-based. There were no graphics, but it gave me a taste of what you could do. I had four huge, heavy, hard drives that just held, I guess, you know, in the kilobytes, 20 kilobytes, that's it. That's how much you use on a footstep nowadays. And then I used that for a while until the whole town switched over to the Sonic Solutions system. And I bought uh, four of those systems. That, that was in, uh, I think, 1991. You know, on the Sonic Solutions system, I basically edited digitally 
in exactly the same way that I edit on the moviola. I, I set things up in exactly the same way. And it took me a while to get to the point where, hey, I can hear more than three tracks at a time. So I gradually got into that and, and then being able to pre-mix your stuff too. When you were working on Mag, on Moviola, there were some things that you wanted to do and you just couldn't. And now in digital, there are things that you want to do and you can. It was just a, simply a different way of doing things, but the method, the basic method was, was the same, yes. And I used those up until 2000, and I retired, and then I bought a Pro Tools. Dan talked about how he got a start in the film business, specifically in working with filmmaker Brian De Palma. I was working at Magno Sound at that time, and, and um, I was calling around for work, and I called a producer by the name of uh, Ed Pressman, because I had worked on a film for, for him, called Out of It. It was a film with John Voigt, who played a high school bully. So I called him, and, and he said, well, he's doing this film. It's called The Phantom of the Paradise. He said, why don't you meet the editor? So I did meet Paul Hirsch, and we talked a little bit, and uh, he talked to Brian, and they decided that they'd give me a reel. And so I did it. And they heard it, and they liked it, so they hired me. And that's how I started with Brian De Palma. But outside of that, Brian, he never really said much to me. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't tell me what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I scored a film with sound in the way I liked to do it. Dee mm -hmm. Dee Allen asked for alternates, but, but uh, I didn't do that. I very rarely did a spotting session with a director. They didn't know what they wanted. <laughs> uh, like Robert Benton, okay, he said, Dan, I want you to talk to Robert Benton. He's gonna tell you what he wants in his film. So I go up to Robert Benton and he says, sound is very important in this film. And that was it. <laughs> so, Dan's approach to creating sound for a film was holistic, formed in an era where the sound editor was responsible for editing all of the sounds in a film, including dialogue and effects. I, first, what I try to do is to figure out where we are in the world. And if you're sitting in a room and there's no windows, for instance, and you don't know what's outside, you could do anything you want. What inspired me was, it was a film that I saw, a Scorsese film, and uh, uh, people are driving in a car and they're talking and we're not sure where they're going or, or what they're doing. And all of a sudden you hear a fire jet go overhead. And that said it right away to me. They're near an air base and these people probably live on the air base or very close to the air base. I know what kind of people they are. And that inspired me to do other things, put in on films, you know, like to put in trucks going by or something like that to give you a, a mood of the kind of people that you're dealing with. One time, I was working on a De Palma film. It was called Obsession, and the composer was Bernard Herrmann. And they, uh, they recorded the score in London in a church, and they brought it back here, and we mixed it at Magno 
the sound. The mixer was yeah. Al Gamalia. A Bernard Herman came to the mixing session, and he sat in front of the console. The console was raised, and he sat in front of the console, so he was down below the console. And there's this big scene in the in the uh, film where the cars are pulling in and cops are jumping out and everybody's running running around and doors are slamming and things are going on and, and a big effects job and we're mixing it and the music is going I'm like mad and all of a sudden I see this cane come up like this it's like take out those cheap Dime stores, sound effects, I don't want to hear any other sound with my music. Boom. And that was it. We stopped. I got up. I left. I walked down. I, you know, I went to the change room because I had some work to do. And, I, and I'm working down there, and De Palma comes down. He puts his arm around me. He said, don't worry, Dan. We're going to put it all back. And we did. <laughs> so... So, but but there was a lot of that uh, where where you'd try to set up a mood for the scene by putting in off-screen sounds. Who knows? A garbage truck, um, kids yelling, a dog barking, all that sort of stuff. And most of the time, that stuff was just thrown out. They didn't want to have anything else interfering with the dialogue. And sometimes I'd sneak it back in. I've got to give you a story, okay? I was going after this film. It wasn't sure, uh, you know, that I was going to do the movie. And I kept making phone calls and I never got any answers. Up to that point, I had done eight films for Brian De Palma. And they never answered my calls. So I got another call from a person who was making a film called Dirty Dancing. And I called the people again at Untouchables, no answer. So I took the Dirty Dancing job. And no sooner that had I taken that job was I got a call from the cutting room on the Untouchables saying, we're having a temp mix in two weeks, and we want you to get this all ready for it. I say, wait, wait a minute, I don't have the job. He said, oh, yeah, it's okay, you got it. You know. So I got that job. So I tried to get out of Dirty Dancing, and um, I was threatened with a lawsuit if, if I quit Dirty Dancing because we had already signed a contract. So that was a period of time when I was working on both films at the same time, and I had a huge crew, both on The Untouchables and Dirty Dancing. And I, I wanted to get some um, <clears throat> sounds of some Tommy guns, real Tommy guns. Just so happens there's a place upstate in Kingston, or there was at that time, that made Tommy guns and sold them to hobbyists and, and, and things. So I got Andy to come with me. We got a huge spool of mic cable. I forgot how long it was, but it was, it was a lot of it. And, and we went up there and we recorded. And I wanted to get the sounds of the bullets whizzing by the target, which was 50 yards away or something. I, I forgot how long. So we ran the cable from the Nagra along the ground up to the target and set up the mic. 
the guy starts firing the Tommy gun and immediately <laughs> cuts the cable in two. I don't understand how we didn't hit the mic, but 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 we did, <laughs> but we did hit the cable. But but we got the sound. In the end, after a lifetime in sound recording and editing, it seems the memories that meant the most to Dan were reflected in his personal sound library and the tools he used to use by hand. I've got a bunch of synchronizers, you know, in my storage locker. I've got a bunch of splicers. I've got sound sound boxes. It's worthless, it, it, uh, but uh, no, I can't part with it. I've got a couple of synchronizers right here in this house. They, they're just sitting on the floor and not doing any syncing. <laughs> as far as my library goes, I've got a lot of it still. I digitized almost all of it, but a lot of it is mono, but, but there's some good stuff in it. This episode is co-produced by Isabel Siderni, Sherry Johansson, and Ben Baker. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode of Frame by Frame with director Dee Reese, composer Tamara Kali, and music editor Nancy Allen on their collaborations on Pariah, Bessie, and Mudbound. In New York, I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame. <laughs>